Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, I invite you to open it up and turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 20, as we're continuing on in the book of Deuteronomy. And um, these events in the book of Deuteronomy, they, they take place within just a few days, and that gets kind of lost when we read the entire book of Deuteronomy. But in reality, these events, these these sermons that Moses is giving take place in just a few days. And with Israel finally camped on the plains of Moab, just east of the Jordan River, with, with, all, with the walls of Jericho only just a few miles away, Moses calls his people together to remind them of their identity as God's chosen people. And this book is as we know, is comprised of three speeches or or three different sermons uh, by Moses in which he is reminding them of what God has done for them. And And he presses on them the responsibilities of the covenant that they have made with God. And then he reasserts the importance of that covenant by laying out its blessings and its curses, life and peace if they obey and death and chaos if they do not. So if you have your Bible, read Deuteronomy 20, starting in verse one. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. The officers also shall speak to the people, saying, who is the man that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise, he might die in the battle and another man would dedicate it. And who is the man that has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise, he might die in the battle and another man would begin to use its fruit. And who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not married her? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise, he might die in the battle and another man would marry her. Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. When the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall appoint commanders of armies at the head of the people. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. If it agrees to make peace with you, and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself and you shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. 
Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. And when you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an ax against them, for you may eat from them, and you shall not cut them down. For is the tree of the field a man that it should be besieged by you? Only the trees which you know are not fruit trees you shall destroy and cut down, that you may construct siege works against the city that is making war with you until it falls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in prayer. We are reminded of the words that you spoke to the Israelites, instructing them on on how to conduct themselves in times of war. God, we thank you for your concern for justice and righteousness and for the reminder that we are engaged in a spiritual battle against sin and Satan. God, help us to, to always conduct ourselves in a manner that is just and righteous, both in times of peace and in times of conflict. Thank you for the ultimate victory that we have in Christ. God, we know that in him we have the power to overcome sin and death, and that one day all wars, all conflicts, all battles will come to an end. Help us to live each day in the light of this victory, to share the hope and love of Christ with those around us. We praise And thank you for the word of God and the wonderful truths that it contains. Thank you for showing us your gracious character and eternal goodness to us in your word, which was written to instruct us on how to live and, and to teach us all that you would have us to learn. God, help us live in this fallen world with patient endurance as we seek to look to Jesus. Thank you for the glorious hope that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. God's laws for battle bring salvation. So, preparing for war is a necessary thing. Just going in blindly probably is not a wise thing to do, so preparation is a very necessary thing, and for a nation, even more necessary. And And God needed to give rules for the conduct of war for this new nation of Israel, God's people. And to us today, I believe this passage can play a dual role. One, I believe that it gives us guidelines for the conduct of war. And the second is that it it also gives us guidelines on how we should face other battles that you and I face. See, the Christian life is often described using this battle language in 2 Corinthians 10, verse three, for though we walk in flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of forces. 
First Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. See, we can learn something about God's approach to the battles that we encounter in life by looking at his rules for war that are given in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And the first thing that we learn is that God's laws for battle bring salvation because our faith in God is essential in every aspect of our lives, including times of war and conflict. You see, the instructions for for this warfare begin with an exhortation concerning the role of the military. And as a reminder, it's given that success is always dependent on God who fights for his people. And Israel does not, does not conduct wars on God's behalf. Rather, God cares and God provides for his people when they come under the attack of other nations that God has judged. You see, this is the proper definition of a holy war, as it's sometimes called. It's the concept is that God provides the victory not that a nation fights for God, that God provides the victory, not a nation fighting for God. And it's important to have this well-prepared military, um, but military success is always dependent on God as the warrior who fights for his people. And the model that is given is of God who brought Israel out of Egypt when Israel did not have an organized military force. Verse one, when you, Israel, go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them for the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. God, God took up the military attack against Pharaoh back in Exodus 14, finally sinking his armies into the Red Sea. And so, If this is the example of divine warfare, then honestly, an army would not be necessary at all. But just as the gift of the land did not come without combat, as Moses reminded Israel in the first sermon, life in the land will also involve war. See, most often the enemy will be overwhelming. Numerous horses, numerous people, numerous chariots. But Israel must never fear because military success is never dependent on the superiority of the military's forces. And warfare should never be engaged apart from a divine mandate for the protection of the covenant people. If warfare is under God's command, there is no opposing army that should cause any terror to God's people. In Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul praises the glories of the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, Paul goes on to talk that no one, no one can frustrate God's purposes. 
since he gave Jesus the ultimate treasure of heaven for us, we can be assured of his care and all his promises stand firm for our present time and for eternity. No one can frustrate God's purposes. Any accuser or any circumstances or any sin shrinks in stature alongside the risen Christ who is interceding for us at God's right hand. And in all these things that could seem to defeat God's people, God and those whom he loves remains united and inseparable now and forever. Moses goes on to say that the priests, the priests are part of the military operations as they represent God to the army. Verse two, when you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. You see, the task of the priest is to provide the assurance that God is with them in the battle. This is stated first as the central requirement for engagement in warfare. But in actual practice, the priest would speak to the army once it had been assembled. Once the army had been roused together, the priest would come before them as they were about to engage in battle. See, other armies, as we read, would depend on the power of chariots, on the power of horses and numerous people, but Israel would call on the name of the Lord. Dependence on military weapons would result in failure, and only the Lord could protect his people. God's word provides a, a later example of this, the priest coming before the people. In 2 Chronicles, Jehoshaphat is overwhelmed by this coalition of kings that are rising up against him and against the nation of Israel. And Jehoshaphat seeks the Lord in prayer and, and he assembles his army. And his prayer is answered when a prophetic declaration through a Levitical priest. We read in 2 Chronicles 20, then in the midst of the assembly, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. What? Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed tomorrow. Go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Jehaziel, the priest, he explains the route of the attack, but he, he encourages the army not to engage in battle. I don't know about you, but I don't think those are very comforting words as you're about to go out to battle. Jehaziel encourages the army not to engage in battle and instead to wait for the salvation of the Lord. So what does Jehoshaphat do? I think the question kind of goes up in the air sometimes because if you've read about a lot of the kings, there were good ones, there were bad ones, there were good ones, there were bad ones. Jehoshaphat, how he responds. Jehoshaphat assembles a Levitical choir at the head of his army to engage the superior forces. 
And before the opposing army arrives at the scene of the battle, its whole coalition, all these kings and their armies collapse into fighting one another. And Israel arrives to gather up the spoils. So this would not be the norm for every battle, but it does demonstrate the practice that Moses explains in verses two through four. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people, and he shall say to them, hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So once this army, this volunteer army, has been assembled, the priest addresses them with the declaration that unless the Lord fights for them, their cause is lost. But with God on their side, they cannot lose. We read these same words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus is commissioning his disciples to help him in his work. This work was motivated by compassion for the harassed and the helpless and And it was to be done without any cost to those who benefited from it. Just as the disciples' relationship with Jesus freely came to them, so it was to be freely given. So the disciples' ministry then was to imitate Jesus' ministry and to communicate the life-giving, restorative, utterly free gift of grace that God so clearly displayed in Jesus' ministry. And like Jesus, the disciples would battle rejection. They would battle opposition even from their own families. So brothers and sisters, disciples of Christ, today we are also called to live and minister in this exact same way. Our lives and and, and the practical methods that we use in ministering to others in the name of Jesus should always bear the stamp of God's joyful, gracious, and utterly free forgiveness and restoration of his creatures. And at the same time, no matter how good the news or how honest our methods are and how winsome our appeal might be, the message of the gospel will sometimes meet with harsh, even violent rejection, as was true for Jesus himself. Verses five through eight, they they start to seem a little strange. We've roused the group together. We've gotten the army together. The priest has come before and given a big, great battle cry to get behind. But after the rousing call to arms, There's this deliberate trimming of the troops. And after talking about the fact that the enemy army is greater than their army, the officers are to work on reducing the size of the Israelite army. And because this is the Lord's battle, the size of that army does not matter. Unsuitable soldiers would, they would be a problem for they might fail to carry out God's commands so they must be excluded. First, those who have built new houses are mentioned. Verse five, the officers also shall speak to the people saying, who is the man that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would dedicate it. 
Next come those planting a vineyard. Verse six, who is the man that has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would begin to use its fruit. Then there's the one who is engaged to be married. And who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not married her? Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would marry her. These three exemptions from service in Israel's volunteer army were cited to illustrate the principle that anyone, anyone whose heart was not in the fight should not be there. Those who had matters on their minds were allowed to leave the army and return to their homes since they would be useless in battle. Their minds would be elsewhere. Moses goes on to say that those who are timid, those who are afraid, they should not join the army either to go to battle. Verse eight, then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. When the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall appoint commanders of armies at the head of the people. See, a fearful person, a uh, a grumbler or, or one who, who does not agree with the basic plan can totally affect the morale of the entire group. And a group needs to discuss these issues with dissenters and they need to work hard at gaining unity. And this can be a you know, pretty time-consuming activity. But I would imagine, and I think you would agree with me, that it's well worth it. Because a person with an overwhelmingly negative attitude can ruin a group. Negativity can be a ragingly infectious disease. And there will always be weaknesses, always, even in the best of groups and even in the groups with the best leaders. There will always be weaknesses. And yes, you and I, we must learn to work with the weaknesses of others. But a negative person can focus so much on the negative aspects that everyone in the group also suddenly focuses on the negative. And the result is that the urgency and the excitement over doing something significant to just run away from the group and leave the group. And so often, people are not motivated because they are in the wrong place, which is what this verse is saying. God will provide the right people to do his work. We should not punish the unsuitable people to to do work that they are not suited to do. So when we lack people, we trust God to send the right people. We don't force unwilling or unsuitable people to stay. Everything that we do, everything that we do should be what God calls us to do, placing our faith in him, in him alone. So Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, in in chapter 15, he reminds the Corinthians that these risk-taking activities for the sake of the gospel, they are done in vain if there is no resurrection. Those Christians with a defective view, a, a twisted view, a wrong view of the resurrection, the salvation of sinners by the blood of Jesus Christ, they not only have been influenced by bad company that they keep, but in their turn, 
They're corrupting others that they fellowship with. Faith in God is essential in every aspect of our lives, including times of war and conflict. Number two, God's laws for battle bring salvation because God desires his people to act with justice and mercy towards their enemies. I know it's hard to see sometimes and it's hard to imagine. I've never led a campaign to war, so I can't speak from that experience. But the general rule in warfare is to seek terms of peace without engaging in a battle. That's the general terms. So if a city accepted those terms of surrender, its citizens, they're not harmed, but they become a part of the state labor force. And verses 10 through 15 describe the wars with, beginning with verse, uh, the beginning of verse 15, cities that are very far from the Israelites that they're not going to inhabit. Moses says in verse 10, when you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. See, the assumption here is that these cities will be defeated if they enter into battle. So this offer of peace is actually the terms of a vassal treaty. And this helps us understand this somewhat puzzling verse 11. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. So if the city accepted the terms of peace, it would open up its gates to the Israelites as a symbol of surrender. And it would grant to the Israelites access to the city. And the inhabitants would become vassals and, and they would serve Israel. Sadly, Israel itself would be a vassal state after its fall to the Babylonians hundreds of years later. But this, this is a, a humane response in, in comparison to what was done in those days. See, often uh, vassals were subjected to great humiliation and, and great brutality. In Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, he reminds the Corinthians that by Christ's death, the death penalty for sin has been paid for all those who trust in Christ. The love of Christ controls us and, and we are reconciled to God through Christ. And because of that, our ministry and our message to those around us should be one of reconciliation. And the essential content of that message is the forgiveness of sins because of Christ's death and, rec and be reconciled to God. Paul announces God's terms of peace with those who will trust in Christ to free them from the wrath of God. And we see in verse 12 that if this offer of peace is not accepted, the Israelites are to besiege the city. Verse 12, however, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. So after God gives the city into their hands, there to uh, verse 13, when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. This is a pretty common practice then during war. And so was the practice of taking plunder. Verse 14, 
Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself. And you shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. See, when you and I face persecution and affliction in this world, we we tend to lose our grasp on our assurance and our hope. We may wonder whether our suffering indicates God's absence from our lives. We wonder if if God will ever bring a release or vindication from the assaults of the enemy. And although we sometimes doubt God's gospel promises when afflictions and, and persecutions enter our lives, such trials are evidence that we belong to him. Just as Jesus' own path to glory was through pain, so too is this true for his disciples in a world that is naturally opposed to God and his gospel. Yet precisely because we are called out citizens of the kingdom of God, we will be persecuted by the unbelieving citizens of the kingdom of this earth, just as they persecuted Jesus. And in the end, however, those who have opposed the Lord will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. See, we can also find hope in the promise of the gospel that Jesus will return to be worshiped, to be marveled, at among all who believe. At Christ's return, we will worship the Lord Jesus because God declared us worthy to worship Christ by the worthiness of Christ. And this same God, this same God will make us worthy, worthy of his calling for our eternal good and Christ's eternal glory, all according to his glorious grace. God desires his people to act with justice and with mercy towards their enemies. And third, God's laws for battle bring salvation when we root out any sinful influences in our lives. And we must be obedient to God's demands even if it is difficult or unpopular. Verse 16 Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. That anything word, it's pretty definite. But you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? should be the question that pops in our heads. Verse 18, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. You see, the inhabitants of Canaan would fall under the judgment of the harem, which means that they are removed entirely from the common 
excommunicated, actually given over to the Lord to be utterly destroyed. And the people are put to death because they stand under final divine judgment. Their time of accountability has come. Their continuing presence would be a danger to the covenant Israel has with God. Their practices in relation to their gods are an abomination to Israel. We should remember a couple weeks ago when we were in Deuteronomy 18, verse nine, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations, the nations we just read about. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. This is not an ethnic matter. The Israelite cities that adopt abominable practices, Canaanite practices, they're also treated the same way. This regulation is given as a theological reality. The Canaanites must be purged so that the covenant of Israel is not compromised with their practices. We see a specific list of people who who practice seeking divine help and, and divine guidance or revelation apart from the one true God, Yahweh. No such people, no such practices are to be tolerated. All are abominable. The destruction of the Canaanites is not an attack on innocent people. It's God's just judgment against sin. Deuteronomy 20 closes with a note about the treatment of trees. I gotta be honest with you. Reading it this past week and studying kind of seems a little out of place, but it makes complete sense. It was the practice of military powers in those days to destroy all the trees in the battle areas. Makes sense. Destroy all the fruit and food-giving trees, desolate the land, or maybe use the big trees as part of their tools to besiege the cities. Verse 19, when you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an ax against them. For you may eat from them, and you shall not cut them down. For is the tree of the field a man that it should be besieged by you? Another little hint reminder of verses prior. Instead, they can use the edible fruits of the trees and perhaps cut down trees not used for food if necessary. Verse 20, only the trees which you know are not fruit trees you shall destroy and cut down that you may construct siege works against the city that is making war with you until it falls. The law of protection of the fruit trees, it acknowledges that Israel is to inherit trees. When you inherit something, it's something that that you did not create. 
Israel did not plant these trees. They're being given this land. They're being given these trees for fruit. They did not plant them. And the law also stops some some human short-sightedness because the ultimate end of the land is to be a fruitful garden for God's people to enjoy. If we remember back to the spies, the two that came back to report a land flowing with milk and honey, sounds like a good land. God is concerned with both the practical needs of the Israelites and their relationship with his creation. God acknowledges that the Israelites may need to use the resources of the land in order to win a battle, but he also wants them to recognize that the trees are not just a means to an end. No, they have, they have value in and of themselves and should, be, should not be destroyed unnecessarily. The Israelites are allowed to destroy trees that are not for food, but they're forbidden from cutting down trees that could provide sustenance. Root out any sinful influences in your life. And you and I must be obedient to God's commands even when it is difficult or unpopular. So let's apply the word. Victory is not won by our own might or power, but by the Holy Spirit who dwells within every follower of Christ. Students, we've heard this. We've heard this over the past few weeks. We've been in the book of Ephesians. We just finished up the book of Ephesians. And Jacob read earlier the ending of the book of Ephesians. Paul concludes this letter to them with instructions for all Christians to put on the armor of God because of the strength that it gives. We Christians cannot stand on our own against superhuman powers. We have to. We must rely on the strength that God and God alone provides. Scripture makes it totally clear that the enemy is no match for our Lord. You and I, you and I cannot rely upon our own resources. We can't. We have to. We must take up the whole armor of God because victory is not won by our own might or power, but by the Holy Spirit who dwells within every follower of Christ. Next, seek God's guidance and wisdom in our battles. Do not rely on our own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. God, our Father, urges us toward a rewarding life. His counsel, his counsel is not just ethical principles to live by. No, but it is a, a call to himself. Trust in the Lord. His incentives, they're not worldly, but the life and the peace that result from obeying his commands. Seek God's guidance and wisdom in our battles. Do not rely on our own understanding. And finally, repent of pride. 
Repent of pride and self-reliance and turn to Jesus, our hope and our salvation. Boys and girls, we've been in this study on Sunday mornings in Sunday school. We've been wrestling with this question. And the question is, how should we feel when we sin? When we sin, we should feel sorry that we disobeyed God and want to turn from Repent of our sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For everyone, for everyone that continues to seek the world's approval, you will lose. Everyone that continues to seek the world's approval will lose. And the grief that comes from the world, in other words, remorse brought about by losing the world's approval, just leads to a resolve to regain that approval. It's this weird, vicious merry-go-round that we get on. We continue to seek the world's approval only to fail at that. And we get back on to seek it again. This produces death or divine judgment. And the truth is, the one and only God who is holy made you, made me in his image to know him. But we sinned and we cut ourselves off from him. But in his great love, in God's great love, he sent his son, Jesus, to come as king and rescue his people from their enemies, most significantly their sins. And Jesus established his kingdom by acting as both a mediating priest and a priestly sacrifice. And he lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross, fulfilling the law himself, taking on himself the punishment of the sins of you and me. And he rose from the dead, showing that God accepted his sacrifice and that God's wrath against you and God's wrath against me had been exhausted. And God now calls us to repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. And he promises that if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. Repent of pride and self-reliance and turn to Jesus, our hope and our salvation. God's laws for battle bring salvation. While I was studying Deuteronomy 20 this past week, I was reminded of a song that I learned in vacation Bible school. And while some people are a little uncomfortable with the uh, militaristic themes, Onward Christian Soldiers has this, uh, has this uh, reminder that it gives that scripture itself contains a great deal of warfare imagery. Sabine bearing gold, the, British, the, sorry, the parish priest of a mission church in Horbury Bridge, Yorkshire, England, wrote Onward Christian Soldiers in 1864. 
for a children's Pentecost Sunday procession. Baring Gould said the following about the writing of this song. For a Pentecost procession, it was arranged that our school should join forces with that of a neighboring village. I wanted the children to sing when marching from one village to another, but couldn't think of anything quite suitable. So I sat up at night and resolved to write something myself. Onward Christian soldiers was the result. It was written in great haste, and I'm certain that nothing surprised me more than its popularity. So let me put you at ease, we're not going to sing it. Although many of you are probably right now singing it in your head, just like me. But I wanna read to you verse two. And it wasn't the verse that I always would sing in Vacation Bible School, and it hit me a little differently this week. Because you see, when, when we repent and when we believe in what Christ has done for us on the cross and, and reconciled us to God, I imagine that this be part of the battle cry. Verse two. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices loud, your anthems raise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you today as your humble servants, seeking your, your guidance and, and your wisdom as we meditate on the words and the truths from Deuteronomy 20. God, as we, as we read these verses and we're reminded of the battles that we face each and every day, God, the struggles against sin and temptation and, and the trials and tribulations that test our faith, we're also reminded that victory is not won by our own might or our own power but by your spirit which dwells within us. God, we confess that we've often relied on our own strength and on our own wisdom, completely forgetting that you are the source of all power and all truth. We have neglected to seek your guidance and your wisdom in our own battles, choosing instead to rely on our own understanding. My God, we are fighting a battle that you have already won. And we ask that you forgive us of our pride. You forgive us of our self-reliance. And God, you help us to turn to you in, in humble dependence. God, we pray that you will give us the courage and, and the faith to face the battles before us, knowing that you are with us, you fight for us, you save us from our enemies. God, we ask that you would be our refuge and you would be our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Help us to trust in your unfailing love and to cling to your promises even when the way before us seems dark and uncertain. Help us to remember the words of Deuteronomy 20 and 
to live our lives in obedience to your commands. Help us to trust in your goodness and your mercy and to rest in the knowledge that you are always with us. You are guiding us and you are leading us to victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand.